Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Global Marketing Director for the Adam Hall Group, Katie Eisman. First of all, wouldn't it be really wonderful if you went to a gig and there was a minimum with how much you can get paid? Boy, we'd all feel better with that. It turns out that that's actually going to happen in Australia. The Australian Parliament passed a bill on November 25th to provide minimum wage for musicians, but the interesting thing here, it was only proposed two days earlier on the 23rd. So Australians are being proactive in protecting their musicians. Wouldn't it be nice if the rest of the world felt the same way? Australian musicians will make a minimum of $250 per gig for three hours. That's about $175 US. And that breaks down to between 150 and 200 for the gig and another 50 to 100 for expenses. This isn't for every venue though. Only the ones that receive public funding have to pay minimum wage. Even so, it's a great step in the right direction. Just try to get a plumber for that rate, either in the US or the UK or Australia. Can't be done. So why shouldn't musicians make their fair amount as well? Hopefully this will catch on with the rest of the world. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. As you can imagine, I get a lot of questions every week, either sent directly to me via email or maybe in a comment, or maybe it comes up during a Q&A session or a webinar. One question keeps on coming up over and over, and that's recording vocals. What's the best way to do it? So let me give you some foolproof tips of the things that have helped me during my career. First and foremost is to choose the right microphone. Just because your microphone costs a lot, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to sound best on that particular vocalist. Sometimes a microphone that you just don't expect is really the right match. So choose the right mic, and don't let your choice be led by the price or the brand of the microphone. The next thing is to choose the right pickup pattern. Once again, everybody assumes that cardioid is going to work best. That's not always the case. You'll be surprised that sometimes an omni pattern will work even better. And that's because you may actually get a flatter response with no proximity effect, which may be perfect for the vocalist. Early in my career, I actually got a lot of work because of the vocal sound that I would get, and my secret sauce was always using the Omni pattern. The next thing is to check the distance from the microphone. The vocalist does not have to be right on top of it. As a matter of fact, I like to use the hand as the best way to tell a vocalist how far away to be. For instance, a full open hand would be one particular distance, and a fist might be another one. If you need it even farther than that, you can use a fist and a hand or two hands. Whichever way you do it, that tends to work better because if you just put a piece of tape on the floor, it will keep their feet in the right position, but they can move and rock in and out. So again, just telling them to stay a hand away sometimes works better than anything else. 
Next thing is to place the mic correctly. You don't have to place it directly in front of a vocalist's lips. Matter of fact, sometimes that's not the best. If you look back at all of the pictures from the 50s and early 60s, you look at those old Frank Sinatra pictures, and anybody in the studio, especially at Capitol Records, because there's a lot of photos from there, you'll find that the microphone is basically up near the nose and pointed down towards the lips. And this works great for many reasons. One is the fact that any plosives are going to happen below the microphone. Second thing, maybe even the best thing about this, is it forces the vocalist to sing upwards and as a result, open up their diaphragm. So you get a better performance as well. The last thing is to keep the vocalist very comfortable. That means getting a great headphone mix. It means setting the temperature so they're really comfortable and setting the lighting so they're comfortable as well. Ask the vocalist what they need, give it to them, you'll get a much better performance. My guest this week is Katie Iceman, who's the Global Marketing Director for the Adam Hall Group. The Adam Hall Group brands include the sound reinforcement company LD Systems, stage lighting company Cameo, stand company Gravity, cable protectors by Defender, and Adam Hall hardware and flight cases. It's also the distributor for brands like Hoffner, EBS, Maton, and Mad Professor Amplification. Before joining Adam Hall, Katie spent 10 years with labels such as Warner, Universal, and Virgin, and then moved into the fashion sector at brands like Eastpac and Edamall before returning to the music business with her position with Adam Hall. During the interview, we spoke about being one of the few females in live sound, how the music business prepared Katie for the fashion industry, the difference between the U.S. and European audio markets, and much more. I spoke with Katie via Zoom. I've read about your background, and it's pretty interesting, actually, because you were in the music business, then you left, and you came back. Let's talk about when you first started in the music business. How did that happen? How did you get in? I was quite young, and it was actually a coincidence, um, because uh, where I grew up, and right in the middle of Germany, we have a festival, a music festival, which has been growing over the years. And at that time, I was uh, about 14 years, and some friends of my older sister, she's eight years older than me, they convinced me to work there as a volunteer. And I was like, oh, no, all these musicians and bands, they only smoke weed and I don't want and I don't like that. And, and then they convinced me. I said, no, it's not like that. Please, we need helping hands and please convince yourself. And it had always an approach of, um, you know, supporting the area I've been growing up and um, it always had a theme. So they asked me to work out on that theme and and to actually prepare some bread walls for the artists in the backstage area. And so I started, and this is where it all started. I totally got on fire uh, with music. I always loved music uh, being as a child already. And um, then I saw the life business and it totally got me. And here I am. So you love the live business, but then you went into the recorded music business. Yes. Yes, um, I did that volunteering thing until the age of 18. And then I started uh, right after school, I started studying, but my heart was beating and my passion was so much into into music. Um, where I was studying 
information technology, which didn't fit at all to my passion for music. And at that time, I was, of course, still on tour, visiting bands. I met on the festival, they invited me and one of uh, management of, at that time, quite a famous band in Germany. He asked me, well, we're building up a promotion agency for live touring. If I would like to join and build that up. And I was bloody 19 years old. And I said, well, I don't know what promotion is, but yes, let me throw into the cold water. And I started. And I uh, was part of the team who grew up this agency that still exists uh, today. And um, then two years later, Warning Music, or at that years, it was still East West Record, Records that got uh, sold to Warner Music years later, asked me if I um, would like to join them as a product manager. And I was, as far as I remember, the youngest product manager. I was one of the only few female at these years. It was in mid-end of 90s. Um, and then I said, yes. And I started as a total rookie. I had a very nice mentor who was coaching me. Um, and um, yeah, and then I grew, my, my career actually grew for, at that time, um, 12, 13 years in the record business. And um, which was a, a totally different job, but um, I was responsible first as a product manager and later became also an A&R um, because something in me was, you know, I had a talent to, to look for the right talents and um, accompany them through the recording studio phase and having the right vision of the right marketing um, globally. And it was quite one of the best times of my life at these years. I mean, I I was exploring this this industry and the golden years of the business until the digital revolution hit the market. And then it was yeah changing everything. What was it like to be one of the few females in the business and that end of the business? It had it always has two sides. On the one hand, I knew uh, people were interested in what I do, and on the other hand, I mean, you see me now. I'm I'm um, I look like I'm looking, and it was of course an advantage of always looking like that and not uh, looking different. And I doubted very often. I was in doubt if people are interested in my skills or in that I'm a woman, which we weren't very many women. So, um, but we were a very strong team. Uh, I was working at the time and she was one of my biggest mentees. Maybe uh, could be an interesting partner for you also to meet one day. The only, at, this, at, the, at these years, the only female A&R we had in the business is uh, Rita Flegetim. She was running the the pop and uh, mainstream department of East West Records for for the German market, and she is really one of the most desirable women in the business. And she she taught me how to deal with that business, meeting only men, and uh, you know um, always getting getting uh, two offers, uh, the one in the professional life and the other in the private life. And it was she was really strong, and it was complete different time and you know when the me too campaign uh, started that was the actually that was the first time i realized what happened to the women in the business i never really? was questioning that i never was well um okay yeah because i'm a woman you might you know um like me i never was questioning that i was always i always thought this is totally normal and 
that's quite something. That was a moment I changed my mind, of course. And, um, I knew and understood, understood what happened then. Well, of course, that was normal back then. Yes, it was totally normal, yeah. Not saying it's right, but it was normal. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, um, luckily, times have changed, luckily, luckily. And um, I think we we all learned, um, and it's a thing of getting older anyway. You learn in getting older, you, you start reflecting, and, and, you know, it's it's a nice age having right now. Why did you leave the music business? This was quite emotional. I I was um, I was at that time when I decided leave, to leave. Um, I I had the most successful time in the business. I was um, an A and R and product manager. I just signed um, the first and still ever only country band uh, in Germany uh, for Universal Music. And um, our former boss, he was. One day he was in doubt, the other day he wasn't, if this is the right choice to sign. And I was totally convinced that this band has a big potential in, in Europe. And um, at the end, he let us he let us go and uh, we signed the contract. And let's say a year later, this was one of the most successful bands um, in Europe and uh, starting, of course, in Germany. And um, But then the digital digitalization hit the market and all of a sudden... Um, as we had to deal with human beings, I mean, all artists have a heart and a soul and a mind. And to being an A&R at these times in the past was you have to hunt for the best talents on the market. You have to convince them that you, for the label, the big major labels, are the right surrounding working together with you. And all of a sudden, the digitalization left us there without having any recipes how success is to be made and the big major labels weren't so agile and they were just too big to to um, adapt to the market situations but i still had the need to convince the artists and human beings to work together with us without knowing how success in the future will work and um, this really was it, it changed my mind because i i was a bit lost and and i felt the pain of the artists and I saw what has changed so dramatically. We still were by, were signing the big artists. We, we still were negotiating big deals, but no one knew how to bring these artists to the success stage. So, and I was questioning myself and say, well, um, these human beings, which I was used to work very closely with, they, they put all their hope for many years exclusively, exclusively uh, under your contract and you don't know how this will work in the future and you I knew that the big labels the major labels won't change that quickly so I decided to leave because I was thinking I've had so much success I have luck um, I was happy and I was tired of course also and um, I tried to to go into another business yeah and this was um, in the year 2007 okay so what was that like you're used to being in the music business, which is different than anything else. And then it, it was the fashion business you went into? Then? Yes, I went into the fashion business because, um, to be very honest with you, it was, I mean, I, I'm a total autodidact. I, I didn't I didn't study music. I didn't study economics. I studied very much later, um, psychologically. And um, psychology, excuse me. And 
um, it was, I was like a rock star in the fashion business. That's how they saw me because they were fascinated by the fame we produced, we were producing. And it was like, I brought some confetti into the fashion business. And I think looking back now, it's, it was the reason they decided to work together with me. I was working for uh, then uh, Vanity Fair Corporation, which is the biggest textile shareholder value company in the world. They own brands like uh, Timberland, Eastpac, Vans, Wrangler, Lee Jeans, and so on. And I was responsible there for um, Eastpac, the backpack brand, being very famous in the 80s. And uh, yeah, my, my task was to make this brand famous again uh, in, in Europe. And um, this was, of course, quite interesting because also I didn't knew the tactics and the mechanics of the fashion industry. It was quite similar to the music business because, of course, I knew that you have to work together with, to, nowadays we call them influencers. At these years, it was uh, the same, but it had different names. And uh, we actually worked together with musicians and bands supporting them, being on tour, organizing concerts and tours. And that that's, was the reason at the end how the brand became famous again in the European market. But I still, I always missed the music business. I mean, it's, it's very obvious where your heart is. You can't throw your heart away and say, now I do something else now. When the opportunity with Adam Hall came along, were you ready to leave? Was it something unexpected or were you ready to leave where you're at? I was totally ready to leave. It was like when, you know, being 14, I remember one of my first festivals, I was uh, back, I mean, being a teenager, sitting on a flight case. And I knew that I knew Adam Hall from this business. And then I met Adam Hall, um, this company, and hearing the development in between my first experience sitting on a flight case and Seeing what they have been developing over these many years was just amazing for me. And it was an honor, actually, to fulfill this, this um, job there. And it's, it's a quite super, super interesting and exciting company. I was pretty amazed when I actually did some research in Adam Hall. I didn't realize how extensive the company is the brand in terms of distribution, rentals, installations, all those things, which I had no idea. Yeah. Before we even get into that, can you give us some of the history of, of Adam Hall? Well, Mr. Adam Hall, uh, he gave the name to the company. He founded the company being a musician in, uh, in the 70s. And he was, he was questioning himself and he was worried about his instruments being on tour because he said, well, listen, my guitar breaks, my, my um, drum set is breaking down. So I need, I need to, to invent something um, to transport my instruments on a secure way. That is the story of how he developed the flight case. And this ambition to make existing things better was, is still, until today and will ever be, the, the mission and the ambition of, of this company. And he brought this, he, he moved from, from Southern England and Europe to, for the laugh, to Germany. That's when uh, they moved the headquarters from, from UK to Germany. And then he developed further anything else he wasn't interested in, in stage equipment. He said, well, for instance, the stand or this cable isn't working the way I like. I have to, to 
make it better. I have to develop it further. And he came together with German engineer art, let's call it like that, and engineerism. And um, so it grows and grows. And, you know, the, the really, really, the company still is running by human beings. What I said, the reason because I left the music industry is what I find, found there back. It's all made by human beings. We are totally in private hands. We are owned by, still the founder is in the company, one of the founders in the board. And you feel that it's all heart and, and soul is is there and anybody, everybody who's working there is is doing it because he loves music and he wants to make existing things better or inventing new things that help to make entertainment better and give it give it back some magic. Is flight cases still the main business? No, no. The main business has developed still flight cases like about 15% of the company, but it has developed further because um, of course, any, imagine anything you need to to set up an event or concert or any kind of event, meaning stage, uh, light stage and, and sound as being developed right now. So the biggest part at the moment is doing sound and light. Anything you can imagine you need for PA columns and uh, studio techniques and light, uh, especially for theaters and concert halls is uh, being developed under the umbrella of the Adam Hall Group. And we have a group there, our own brands. The main one is LD Systems, which is uh, our sound brand. And the second, the light brand is Cameo. And Cameo is developing very, very quickly globally. Um, also because of the unique design combined with the user friendliness our products have. And that's also the success story of LD Systems, that we know exactly how the user is what the user needs, and we develop the products with the German engineering uh, mindset for making the life of a musician or uh, a, a studio engineer easier in handling the products easier. LD Systems is interesting to me because in the 80s, I was the sales manager for Amec, which is a large recording console company. And I can remember the local rep in Texas taking me to LD Systems at the time, and they were just a, a small regional sound company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a fit because we made big recording consoles and they weren't really doing that. But I sort of lost track of them. And then I see that they're under the umbrella of Adam Hall and how well they're doing. And I did some research and I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> this is the same company, but wow, it's a big difference. Yeah, it's a big difference. I mean, we are in the sound universe. LD Systems isn't the big player in terms of the size of venues. But let me put it like that. I, I'm personally convinced that we are a big player in in the mid-size event uh, um, size. So anything up to 2,000 visitors of an event, LD Systems is the best technology you can use. Uh, because of the user-centric friendliness. And it's, I mean, I'm totally convinced of it. And I, anybody I meet, everybody I meet, and I, I suggest them just try, just try this system, is convinced from the first moment. on. It's a really surprising uh, product, and I'm happy we have this. You came on during COVID, right? When COVID was, oh, yes. was raging, <laughs> oh, yes. which is just, you know, so bad for the live sound business. It is, it is. What was the approach? 
Uh, look, it, it, it was the first day I started was in second uh, of June uh, 2020, and it was my birthday. And I expected, of course, like a confetti and a, and, and a kind of balloons in my office. But uh, as we were in the lockdown, uh, no one was there. So I was just picking up my stuff and, and leaving back home, uh, starting in, in such a nice company and trying to run uh, a team of uh, almost 40 colleagues and um, it was really really the strangest thing I have explored and, and experienced in my life and talking about my personal feelings the the whole industry was down it was it, it, nothing was possible anymore and lucky us because we have such a wide portfolio uh, being able to have products and, and to deliver products for studio musicians for you know even products for home office solutions for podcast podcast producers um lucky us we had still the fortune of being able to sell products whereas other competitors were completely down by 90 or even 100 percent minus of their revenues so we still only had a breakdown of 40 percent on average nevertheless almost the whole company uh, uh had to go well, down to short time uh, uh, working situation. And uh, we are back now um, to 100% working time now since end of September this year. So it was 15 months of being in this hard situation. And now we see wherever the vaccination is, is growing in these hard times, uh, the business is coming back. But we don't know how. We just see that the business is coming back and something is, is growing back again, by the way, like it that never did before, but we don't know how the world will, you know, come back to the to a, what kind any kind of normal. We don't know. It's just like looking into a, you know, a, a glass. Right, crystal ball, crystal ball. Yes, yeah. crystal ball. Thank you. Well, humans are good at adapting, and it seems like we've adapted to whatever our current reality is. I know where I live. I live in Burbank, California, right outside of Hollywood. It's as normal as you can get. Yes, in the meantime, it is. That's true. The footprint of Adam Hall in the United States, I don't think is as large as you'd like it to be, right? No, not yet. We have started um, to build our own company in New Jersey. And the team there is a super team there. We have uh, almost 20 colleagues there um, having a showroom there. And um, where well, we just started actually three years ago, building up the U.S. market. So it as big as the market is, as as long it will take. So, um, but we build it with our, you know, with our purpose of don't stress, let the people explore the products. We're looking for the right partners, like we did uh, on the all in, in all of the history of the company. Uh, we're looking for the right musicians to collaborate and the right studios. We are on our way to convince the retail and the rental companies to work together with us. And we focus first on LD systems because we believe that um, the competition is on the US market, not that hard as it is, for instance, on the light market. So and it's a bit more, let's say, more interesting to, to talk about sound collaborations and sound history. And we feel already after three years, we see on, uh, because of the reactions of the partnerships we are um, realizing, um, we see already that this works quite well. So step by step, we try to anchor the U.S. market. 
I remember, like I was saying, I was the U.S. sales manager for AMEC, which is an English company, and responsible for building their presence in the United States. And it was difficult, not so much convincing the U.S. market, but the differences between how our market works and what they were used to in the U.K. and the rest of Europe Mm, was way different. Yes, that was the hard part. It was an education on both sides. Mm. And a cultural difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really that's why we build up a team with colleagues from the US mostly. Our sales director Rob Olson, maybe you might remember him, is also quite a musician. He is um well, he is traveling through the US market now, starting back again because it wasn't possible for the past month. But It's totally different. And that's why we need the colleagues in the U.S. market, because they only know the culture of the U.S. and the mechanics of how to open up uh, the U.S. market, because you're totally right. It's totally different. And our expectations would only be, you know, we would only be disappointed if we only stick to our expectations without the knowledge of the the American culture and the way how to build up a brand in the U.S. market. And it's totally different. I just, I, do, I won't say because then I would probably um, look a bit insane, but I could say I have no clue how to build up a brand in the US market because it's so different and the market is so big and we need good partners. That's why we have set up a great cooperation with our PR agency on the market over there. And I'm so happy and grateful to learn from them how this is running on the market. It's totally different. And no mechanic from European markets or any other, even Asia is totally different, is working on on the U.S. markets. It's unique and and very different. One of the things that I think it's easier in some ways than it was when I was involved, because there are fewer dealers and there's more done online. And also, so much of the marketing is done online, where back then there was a lot of dealers that you had to talk to and convince there was a lot of competition. So there was pricing competition and things, a lot of that politics. And everything was done through magazines. It was way different in, in that regard. Yes, so, totally and, agree. But I think it's easier in some regard now because whatever seems to be working in, in terms of online marketing in one area, I think could be adapted to the United States as well. Yeah, surely. And that's where we have no borders. So what we do globally will hit, of course, also the U.S. market. So anything we do we do digitally is also headed towards the U.S. market. We have the philosophy of digital first, whereas still we have, let's say, a selective number of magazines we, we love to work together with and who have um, a hybrid mindset in uh, talking about content and stories and interviews and collaborations. Uh, but still, of course, um, on the one hand, it's easy. On the other hand, I think our the world of our products and having a studio, for instance, like like you do, uh, you need sometimes you still need consultancy from a good salesman on the ground at the retail, which you can't get in an online shop. Sometimes you even just get an answer by a chatbot, and it's nothing personally at all. So we prefer still the old analog world combined with a push or let's say uh, push or getting the awareness through digital touch points but bringing people to the retail to talk to people and to even try it 
on the ground at the POS to have the chance to try out our product and to talk to salesmen who are convinced about the product. I think this is this is much more worth than you know ordering on Amazon. Good that they are there, but they are as they are. And you know, trying out and sending back, and then we have it, you know, and just can can't sell the product again. And it's, I think it's this. This hopefully won't go away because people who produce music um, in studio or live on tour still have a, an approach to quality, and this is what our approach also is. So I think you think you still you still need a translator of how the product works. Guitar Center, even though they're so big, they're not particularly good at that, but Sweetwater is. And I don't know if you've been there, but that would be some place for you to go because you'd be amazed at the operation, how large it is, but they're salespeople. They have a huge sales team and they're trained up exceptionally well. It's very unique for our industry. Yes. High quality people. I'm always amazed at the... Some of the people that I know that are really good engineers or whatever, and all of a sudden I see them there at Sweetwater, and they move to, a, you know, an, it's not a, an attractive place in terms of, not like Los Angeles or, or New York, or, mm. you know, in terms of activity. Yeah, yeah. No, we try uh, to work with them together. I think we are already a step ahead, so uh, I think they haven't sold products of us yet, but we are talking to them already. And um, me personally, I haven't seen them yet. Um, because I couldn't travel to the U.S. for the past month, yeah. but the team, of course, uh, knows them well, very well, and it's one of our targets to get listed there. Adam Hall is also a distributor for a number of products. Oh yes, especially in the U.S. Yes, we distribute in the U.S. market the famous guitar brand Maiden Guitars. Mm. I see your guitars in the back, um, and it's on the wall that you don't see. Okay, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So uh, yes, we—that's um, a big, big one of my most beloved brands uh, in the guitar world. So uh, Mate Guitars from Australia, Hofner too, right? Yes. <laughs> There's a, a lot of them. When I looked, I was really impressed. There's a lot of things that, that you. Uh, yes. Yeah, okay. it's quite. We have, you know, we have seven thousand products in our portfolio, and it's, I think. Personally, me, uh, it's it's really everything you need to to if you think of of an event, even cable bridges to you know don't fall over the cables and gaffer tape and uh, you think of anything you you need building up a stage or in an event location, and I think it will take me another ten years at least to get to know every single product. So um, that's the exciting thing. At seven thousand, you're forgiven for that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, last question, Katie. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or somebody imparted to you? Or advice, doesn't even have to be business advice. I think uh, listen to your guts. That's what I learned. That's what I learned. When I look back, and I'm now almost 44 years old, I think also my, my brain was um, you know saying something else. I felt in my gut some you know the complete different way and every time i went i followed my brain i had to learn the better lesson years even years later that my gut was right so it's sometimes better also to listen to your gut and to give applause to your gut because it's your soul i mean your gut is driven by the soul and the feelings we have and 
It's what our humans are made of. You can find out more about Katie and Adam Hall at adamhall.com. That's Adam Hall, A-D-A-M-H-A-L, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.